Hello and welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined today for our final league show of the season with John O'Sullivan and Jasmine Baba. John is in the west of Ireland after enjoying a lovely weekend out in Galway. How are things with you, John? Yeah, mighty refreshed after a trip back to the motherland and re- renewed vigour to talk about football after what's been an eternally long season. Absolutely. Uh, Jasmine out in Hessen in Germany. How are things, Jasmine? Look like a lovely sunny day out in Germany today. Yeah, we finally got a few days of sun just before the thunderstorms come again. So I'm trying to enjoy it with the end of football. But, you know, football never sleeps. So it's still go, go, go up until the new season next. Um, yeah, the new next season. Yeah, it definitely never sleeps. I mean, we had two major European finals this week. We also had, you know, the managerial merry-go-round hitting the full swing. Uh, I want to start off with the Europa League final. That's okay, guys. Uh, Villarreal versus Manchester United. Really two polar opposite outfits in many ways. I mean, Villarreal are a club of a city made up of just 50,000 people. Um, You know, very, very small budget relative to the European elite. Uh, coached by a guy, Una Emery, who's been discounted by Manny due to his time at PSG and then Arsenal. Um, but with a blend of kind of, you know, insolent, uh, youthful arrogance and really kind of grizzled experience, uh, they've put together a very, very good Europa League run, got to the final, um, having been almost impeccable until their uh, final few games with the Arsenal in the semi-final. And managed to beat Manchester United on penalties, 11-10 on penalties, after winning, after drawing the game one all. sorry, um, after extra time. Uh, what did you make of this game, John? I mean, like like I said, it was very much kind of a, a clash of opposites because Manchester United are this massive, you know, behemoth, very much kind of, you know, you could say inefficient in how they compile their team and how they run it and how they use the resources, all that kind of thing. Whereas Villarreal are very much kind of a, a lean, mean outfit who get the best out of what they have. You know, I mean, obviously they're not the fairy tale that some have insinuated because they are backed by one of the richest men in Spain and all that kind of thing. But it's nonetheless a very, very affirming football story in a year that's been quite bleak in many ways and more than one, but also, you know, with the Super League fiasco and stuff. So what did you make of this game and Villarreal's victorious run? Um, the game itself was awful, but the fact that it was awful, I think, is a big compliment to Unai Emery because he came with a specific game plan that was to frustrate Manchester United, that was to be efficient at set pieces, and that was to really try and to stamp to stymie their attacking flow. And you know, he was a tick in a box of all of those things. In fact, you could say the fact that it even went to extra time was a probably a stroke of fortune for Manchester United because that goal from Edinson Cavani, it took like a pinball amount of ricochets in the box before it fell to him to score uh, after uh, Villarreal had taken the lead. With, like I think that, that set piece was beautifully crafted. It's probably, you know, an area of football that maybe people turn their noses up at sometime, you know, a set piece. They always mightn't be the prettiest looking route to goal, but Villarreal really, you know, crafted and created that really well. The movement was fantastic. I know Lindelof got a got a lot of uh, got a lot of criticism for not marking Moreno strongly but I think there was some clever movement that kind of made a buffer zone for Moreno to get some space and he exploited it merc- mercilessly so 
I think all in all, as much as you know, people will say that a penalty shootout is a lottery, Villarreal were richly deserving of their win. And I think Unai Emery, who you mentioned has maybe been a figure of fun, especially in the English-speaking world because of his accent and you know the infamous good evening uh, kind of lark that surrounds him. But I think all in all, he had a specific game plan and they executed it to a T. And even just how much better he used his bench options in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he... He, there was a lot of maybe raised eyebrows when he took off Baca for Coquelin, but that, that had the desired effect. And uh, all in all, I think they deserve it. And like you mentioned, it's a fantastic story. Villarreal is smaller than Galway, population-wise. So, you know, in terms, of, uh, in terms of history, in terms of facilities, in terms of prestige, and even, like you say, despite the fact that they're backed by a very wealthy Spanish businessmen in terms of uh, in terms of finances, they were a far distant second to Manchester United in every capacity, except on uh, the score sheet. And now, obviously, they qualify for Champions League football, and that will be interesting in the context of whether they can keep Pau Torres, who's a player that's been linked to several clubs, including Manchester United. But I think it's a great story, and it's also just another uh, notch on the bedpost of Spanish European domination. Obviously, they didn't. They didn't really go uh, the furthest in the European Cup this year, the Champions League, but it's another European win for a Spanish club. And this era of dominance is pretty much unparalleled in European football history. So uh, there's many strands to it, but I think it was a great story and totally deserved for VRL. Yeah, I mean, like, it's definitely a shot in the arm for Spanish football because this season has been a bit of a knock to their ego, you could say, in many ways, because of the other performance in the Champions League, for instance, the way they were showing up there um i think they needed something and villarreal's victory gave them that something you know uh what do you make of this game jasmine i mean for me like because i'm based in seville and there's two clubs here sevilla and betis who view villarreal as a direct rival um you know seville from in terms of looking down obviously they're a step above villarreal at the moment and betis are a step below them at the moment even though they finished above them in la liga this season um in terms of their performance over the last five years, you'd say Villarreal are ahead. Uh, but you know, so kind of the sentiment here is that they're not liked. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's kind of unique in Spain in that regard that this is very much a two-city club. Or sorry, a two-club city in terms of um, Sevilla and Betis are the clubs that are supported here. There's no Madrid presence. There's no Barcelona presence. So Villarreal review disdain. But for me, watching that game... Uh, despite having this kind of bias from my peers and people I'm, I'm working with down here, uh, I very much felt caught up in the game and I really wanted them to win because I felt like it was like a victory for football in this year where we've been hit by the Super League, you know, and all, all this kind of thing. Did you feel the same? Even though I know you're not a huge fan of you and Emery, did you feel that after beating Arsenal, you know, coming up against United, who were maybe looking down in the competition as a whole, did you feel like Villarreal's victory was a victory for football? Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, as an Arsenal fan, I can't go into a match where Man United is up against someone who's not my direct rival or our direct rival and be like, oh, you know what? I want Manchester United to win. That will never happen, especially after the 90s, the early 2000s. I could never, um, on my good conscience, go and be like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to support Man United, even despite the Arsenal, Unai, Emery-like stuff. Um, I think it's a great win for football. I know um, Villarreal are well-backed. Um, I don't find them the smallest team. It's not like they played in Osasuna or etc. 
but you know it was a, a it was literally the worst of Unai Emery in that match and it won and this is what he's so good at it 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 was we there were people predicting that he would take off a striker for a defensive midfielder and he did at 60 minutes in they created one shot on target throughout the whole match the whole 120 minutes and man united were no better um with only two and you know what you, when you normally play two um back fours against each other it normally cancels each other out same with back five with back five and you know we saw that a really good defensive structure yet again from Unai Emery's team they got lucky by scoring that first goal and all they had to do was sit back and just you know try and counter try and defend stuff that we've seen so many times before under his tenure at Arsenal and you know, he did the same with Arsenal against Man United. Um, I don't like some of the kind of things that came out afterwards, like, oh, the only problem was Arsenal. Anyone who sees Unai Emery outside of a Spanish team, he has faltered. PSG, he had a world-class team, couldn't get them better than Iligan. Um the league and title Spartak Moscow was a disaster um Arsenal pretty much a disaster as well so you know he just suits Spanish styles and and plays of teams he can set them up well I don't think he's anything better than a Europa League manager but you know what he was in the Europa League final and he took they probably weren't favorites especially with the quality Man United have especially with Cavani's goal, as John said. And it worked for Emery. And they, at the end of it, were deserving winners. I don't think Man United pushed them enough to be classed-worthy winners of that. And for me, even though the bad stuff with Unai Emery and whatever he'll say, it was still absolutely funny because of the history Arsenal have with Manchester United. Absolutely. I guess it's important too that a manager can actually, you know, get messages across in his native language. And I admire Unai Emery for, you know, coming to England and trying to speak English. But I think that if you do that and you speak publicly, it's a dangerous game because you're kind of opening yourself up to ridicule. And he, and he was ridiculed. And it was also the same case in France, by the way, with PSG. He's and tried to speak Russia. French. And and on Russia too, really. I did. Yeah. I was admired of that. But uh, <laughs> but it's like I mean, like it's it's admirable. But I think like it's better to take the Marcelo Bielsa slash Mauricio Pochettino route and like go through an interpreter until you're completely confident. Do you know what I mean? Like because mm. once results go poorly, then people are going to use that as a stick to beat you with. You know? Do you think that he that the language was a big thing in Arsenal? Do you think, Jasmine? <laughs> I think it's language, but. I think Arsenal at the time after Arsene Wenger, it was such a big thing. You needed someone strong, someone strong in philosophy, which he lacks. He is a reactive manager and Arsenal needed someone who was principled and structured. And Unai Emery, I think that was the first failure. And... If you're going to be a reactive manager, you have to have your communication skills down to a T, and which he didn't have 
whether it's language skills or the fact he's just not as good at communication, especially in the English language, that it just kind of fell on deaf ears. I mean, he let, I'm going to say troublemakers take the stand in the Arsenal club. He favoured them and that just disrupted the rest of the team. There was no kind of principles, um, you know, consequences, um, just structure and discipline, which Arsenal needed and which Arsene Wenger so often gave in more of a like caring father figure, but still gave. It was quite stern, which Unai Emery just lacked completely. And I think that if you can say it's down to language, fair enough. But like that kind of basis was the failure, I would say. What do you think, John? Because I mean, like, I guess you can draw parallels in many ways between himself and David Moyes, because both came into a massive club, you know, a historically significant club in England in terms of uh, like Arsenal and United would have a history unlike, say, City or Chelsea, which is much more of a modern phenomenon. Uh, but both came into a club after, you know, the guy, the patriarch in that club had just departed. And they almost had an impossible job in many ways. But I guess where David Moyes has taken the best part of a decade to get back to a point where he can be considered competent, Una Emery has got it in his next job. So do you think that he deserves a bit of credit for that, for being able to bounce back from that failed experience at Arsenal specifically, um, to kind of come back with Villarreal and kind of regain his reputation in a European circle at least? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it must be such a hard, hard thing to go through to be sacked and to be publicly criticised for, you know, for the job you're doing, even if it was something you're doing to the best of your ability. It's unbelievably cutthroat. So from a human level, you'd, you'd have to be fairly happy with him. But I wonder, and I think your comparison with David Moyes is really spot on. I was only actually thinking that earlier. It's just some coaches are better suited to what I would describe as maybe more modest players, players who are perhaps more malleable and more, you know, more more um, suited and more happy to buy into the team structure and to play really to the commands of their coach rather than try and, you know, go after their own bat and do things individualistically because there is a big, there is a big di- difference between my managing, you know, the, the average to good players and my managing the superstars with the associated egos. I think another good example might be Maurizio Sarri, I don't think he ever really got full buy-in at Chelsea nor Juventus, despite the fact that objectively, in my opinion, he done both jobs very well. But if you look at him at Empoli and if you look at him at Napoli, the style of play was almost robotic because the players had such belief in him and his systems. And perhaps they had this thing in their mind that they would need to play it to the strictest of uh, of tactical instruction because that would be their only way to win because they weren't good enough players. So I, I always find it interesting, that dynamic, when a coach can come into a bigger club because while, you know, the tactics are the same and what have you, your expectation and dealing with the egos is, is completely different. And some managers, for example, I would say Zinedine Zidane, are absolutely fantastic at man-managing these players with the big egos and he gets buy-in for his tactics and I would say Pipe Guardiola is probably the best example of it because he can get players who have big reputations and it costs big money and he can nearly completely repurpose them and make them play really strict to what his tactical regime is rather than you know try and be the superstar because that's what you get when you get big uh, big egos they're almost like artists they don't want to be stifled or told what to do so that in itself is a real skill and perhaps at the top top level 
Emery doesn't really have that ability. But when it's, uh, with all due respect to Villarreal, a club with maybe middling players and a middling reputation, he can do uh, he can do very well within those confines. And I think the comparison to Moyes is actually spot on in that regard. Well, Villarreal had never actually won a major title in their history. And that's why he was brought in in many ways, because they've actually underperformed in La Liga this season. I mean, a lot of people tipping them for uh, to push Sevilla for the Champions League place uh, before the season began. They finished fifth last season. Um, and they recruited heavily in the summer. They got in Danny Parejo, who provided that assist we discussed earlier for Gerard Moreno. Um, and also, you know, Francis Coquelin and several other players uh, from... It's a very good business done over the summer, but they never really maintained a consistency and they finished seventh below uh, Sevilla, obviously, but also below Real Betis and Real Sociedad. Uh, and actually quite for the European Conference League. And if they hadn't won that game, they wouldn't even be, haven't even been playing Europa League football next season. Um, so definitely not a completely stellar job there. But the reason he was brought in was to win the Europa League. It was almost explicit in many ways because the coach from last season had done a good job. Um, but he knows how to win titles. And he's done that for the Real, you know. I mean, that game is the best night in their history, you know. But uh, it definitely wasn't the best in the Manchester United's history, though. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like before the game, I remember speaking with Jonathan Fadugba here uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. And I was kind of putting to him before the Roma game, like, if they don't get through this tie, it's a massive failure for United, right? And they got through that tie, obviously, quite handsomely, got to the final. But once again, they failed. And United, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, they are constantly failing in the big games. I mean, I feel like he's a league manager in terms of over the course of a 38-game season, he's going to prepare a team well. He can instigate a good culture. He can bring players up a level and he can do a good job. But I don't think that's what it takes to do a great job because when it comes to the games that matter, when it comes to the League Cup semifinals, the FA Cup quarterfinals, the Europa League finals, Europa League semi-final last season case against Sevilla when they got beaten, um, or even Premier League games where if they win this game, they're set up into a proper title challenge. They fail. So what do you reckon, Jasmine? Do you think that United have hit the ceiling under Ole, or do you reckon that he's still the man to bring them on incrementally? What do you think? I can't remember how many weeks ago I said this, but I said Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't have any real tactics to actually outperform other managers who do have them. And I think next year, if especially if they give him a three-year contract, I mean, we've gone through a very weird year with COVID, quick succession of games, and everyone everyone's standard dropping a level and I don't think he'll be able to replicate what he has done this year next year um especially I mean they were in the Champions League this year I think that's so crazy to think about and they crashed out and they got into the final of the Europa League and I think I even said to Jonathan, no, you'll be facing Villarreal. You won't be facing us. And that's the one you have to be scared of because of Unai Emery. Weirdly, proven right. There's a limit and, as you say, a ceiling to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And we're seeing it now. Like, I don't think he has 
he doesn't have the uh, he just doesn't have the talent. I don't think he has the personality that takes him to be a top manager. I know he's finished second, but next year, if he's still in his post, I don't think they're getting anywhere near that. I think they'll be lucky to come fourth next year. And, you know, they could have sacked him. They could have paved their way a bit like, okay, maybe Tottenham's not the greatest example, but they could have put a, um interim manager and waited for Nagelsmann or something before you know Bayern dug their heels in I think Nagelsmann will should would have still gone to Bayern but you know Man United have all these options all this money all this you know big club mentality yet they don't use it and If you have someone who's lacking on the tactical side of things, we're going to see this again and again and again. We're going to see them lose finals. We're going to see them drop their form in the league. And I don't understand why they would award him with a three-year contract when there's better managers about. Look at what Chelsea have done with Tuchel, which I'm sure we'll get on uh, on about. But, you know, it's just stupid again from Man United. Well, listen, I mean, my dad upgraded his van this week after 20 years. He had a van for 20 years. And it was a, it was a warrior of a van. And it did the job well. Never let him down. But it would, like, make a lot of noise. You could tell he was coming home from, you know, when he just turned the corner at the top of the street, it would make a lot of rattling noise. Uh, it definitely wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing van in the world. It had no mod cons. But he never wanted to change because it was comfortable. It was, you know, it was loyal. Uh, it did him a good job all the time. But this week he changed at my mother's insistence. And he, he life is brilliant now because he has this fancy new van with a working radio. He can hook his, uh, his iPhone to the, the radio and set up all this kind of stuff, listen to podcasts or whatever. And he's a great idea of comfort. The, the van moves silently. It's a perfect upgrade, you know? And I feel like the two-shell appointment is like that in many ways. I mean, like, is Lampard doing a bad job? No, he wasn't. But when you bring in somebody who actually knows what he's doing, who's actually a high-quality asset in terms of a coach, it changes the game completely. I feel like you're doing the same thing. They had the bones of a good squad, and there's no doubt their soul scar has left them in a better place than he found them. But I feel like they're missing a massive opportunity by pulling, you know, this kind of knowledge of the club, this... His loyalty to the United away above all else, I think, you know. But uh, what do you think, John? I mean, like, from my perspective, I feel like the likes of Roy Keane, um, you know, Rio Ferdinand, all these old United boys would be much more lacerating about Solskjaer's accomplishments were they not friends and teammates of uh, the man himself. What do you think? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I obviously don't remember it because I was only a small child, but I've asked people about it, like whether... The ex-Liverpool players, uh, as pundits in the early 90s, would have been scathing of Graham Souness when he was at Liverpool as manager. And he was doing quite a poor job. And apparently, by all accounts, no, they weren't. The likes of Alan Hansen, they would kind of, and Mark Lawrence, and, you know, they would kind of hold back in their criticism and hold their tongue a little bit. And, you know, no matter what, that kind of shapes narrative. So I think had it been Mourinho or Van Hal or another manager, he would have got far more criticism. But I think one thing that, really would bother me if I was a United fan is the fact that they constantly wheel out Alex Ferguson. Now, like, not to get too hot takey or controversial, like, he is 
perhaps the biggest name in the history of the club after Matt Busby. But I think after a certain amount of time, it probably is a bit undermining for Solskjaer, like that Ferguson is still a reference point. He's who they look up to in their time's need for motivation or for ideas. So I don't think it's 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 a fantastic idea to to do that as often as they do. And now people might say, oh, Liverpool do that with Kenny Dalglish, for example. But he's a club executive. He's in the stands. He's not in the dressing room. He's not geeing the players up because they have someone in hired and employed to do that in the shape of Jurgen Klopp. So I think that's something that they, they should need to address. Otherwise, they'll get stuck in a loop like what Liverpool were stuck in with the Liverpool way, always looking backwards. Here's how it was when we were successful. Well, you know, you have to compromise your principles in some way, shape or form going forward because the game changes, the game evolves and you have to move on with the times. And right now, I don't think Manchester United have moved on with the times in any way, shape or form. They've only recently just hired like a technical director slash sporting director in the shape of Darren Fletcher. And whether he's capable of doing that job, it remains to be seen. But it does seem like their whole model is very antiquated. And like Jasmine mentioned about tactics, and she's spot on. It feels like a lot of the time they just delegate creativity and everything to Bruno and everything goes through him. But when he plays poorly, the team is poorly. And he was very poor against Villarreal. So was Pogba. And another bone of contention I would have with him is his overuse of Marcus Rashford. He literally never rests Rashford. And Rashford is 23 and he's already got an insane amount of minutes in his legs. By all accounts, he has to take painkilling injections quite often to play and he has issues with his back. Now, he's never reached the same heights that Michael Owen reached because Michael Owen won a Ballon d'Or at 22 and he was phenomenal from the age of 17. But he says that he peaked at 19 and he attributes being played too much too quickly after injury as the fact that he really started to regress as he went into his 20s. And I think Manchester United could be taking a similar risk with Rashford if they just consistently overuse him like they have been doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other side of Manchester were also in the European final this week. They played uh, Chelsea in the Champions League final on Saturday evening. Um Obviously, Jesse won 1-0 thanks to a goal from Kai Harvard who produced one of the all-time great post-match interviews afterwards where he kind of uh, rather impolitely discarded uh, the interviewer's discussion around his his transfer fee and all that kind of thing uh, by saying, you know, it doesn't matter. We just won the Champions League. That's all that matters right now, which I really enjoyed personally. Um, what did you make of this game, Jasmine? It was a really interesting one. I thought very, very enjoyable, very, very competitive. And also, of course, at all the regalia of, you know, being played in Porto, the sun was shining, there was fans in the stadium. It felt properly European, properly summer, properly a de- demarcation for the end of the season, right? Yeah, it was very, very enjoyable. Um Honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better Champions League. I was saying before we started recording, it was probably bar last year where it was, you know, up in the middle of COVID. The PSG and Bayern match was just insane. Um, Apart from that one, I don't think we've seen an exciting Champions League final since Munich Dortmund, I would say. Um you could really outline the tactics of both teams. They were going end to end in the first 10 minutes. It really felt like, it almost felt like the intensity of the first like 20 minutes was the last five of a cup final. And yeah, it, I had a feeling that, you know, the way Tuchel had managed Chelsea throughout his, since coming in, 
he definitely had a chance for this competition, even though they were facing Man City. Um, we've seen it by their league form, how they're defensively structured in the back three, back five that they do. They create loads of chances. The thing that they lack in goals is their actually their actual shot conversion. And, you know, you saw that kind of really high-intensity football that we'd expect from both teams. However, I think, I mean... We saw, I think, a few of the old habits from Pep Guardiola and Man City. What we saw is probably a bit too much fiddling from his team that we've seen in, like, a few years ago. Um, Me, personally, he went with a more... He went with a team that would have faced an English Premier League side against Chelsea. And... He kind of changed that several times throughout European sides. And I think if he had started, you know, Cancelo and Rodri especially, he would have had more of a chance. Um, And they didn't create much. I mean, we could see after Chelsea had gotten the goal before halftime, yeah, they kind of tried harder, but... There was just nothing that they could really do. Whether that was because Man City set up but or Chelsea's really good defensive setup, that's kind of personal opinion. But you know, it it was kind of Man City were the favourites. They had probably the more suited better team, but Tuchel just completely masterminded them. They used really good um tactics to you know like we've seen like the Chelsea's goal was completely the exact same almost the exact same to the goal that they scored in the FA Cup semi-final against Man City and I think Tuchel went into this really confidently knowing that he beat Guardiola the last two times and didn't change much um I think the consistency has really suited Chelsea yes they've changed personnel but the structure has stayed the same. And, you know, we got a really dominant display from Chelsea and they were deserving winners. I can't really pick a fault from them apart from probably not scoring another chance from Timo Werner, but we know what he's like. So, you know, if they get a, a efficient goal scorer, then I think the league has to be worried next year. Well, I mean, listen, Liam Toomey, uh, who covers our Chelsea for the Athletic, was saying that um, while the Bayern Munich victory back in 2012 felt like the end of an era because the likes of Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba, John Terry were coming to the end of their careers, this very much feels like the beginning of a new one because this team are young and they have this win under their belts. I mean, it's very, very rare if you think about it for an English team, an English club, to have a squad this young in general, to win this title this early. Like, very, very rare. I mean, the Liverpool squad that won it back in 2018 were, or 2019, sorry, were definitely a lot older in the terms of demographics as opposed to this team. Like, it does feel almost like the bit of a beginning of an era in many ways to Chelsea because, like, Tuchel is obviously a, a ruthlessly competent coach. And as you mentioned, like, they're looking at bringing in a striker 
Romelu Lukaku, as you mentioned today, apparently he's not happy with the way Conte has been treated by Inter Milan in terms of not being backed going to the future. And he thinks that maybe his future is best served outside of Italy, outside of Milan. And Chelsea are the number one uh, destination for that, it seems, in many ways. So if you were to add Lukaku into this team, it's almost a frightening prospect in many ways because no matter what, who the coach is, and I'm sure that, you know, Tuchel's not going to be there for a decade. That's not how Chelsea operate. But this nucleus of players having this experience under their belt is very, very dangerous to the rest of England, right, John? I mean, like, how good do you think that this Chelsea team could be? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, if they were to sign Lukaku, I think they would be in the midst of the title race next season. Um, they'll certainly improve whether they sign him or not, because just by dint of having a proper preseason under Thomas Tuchel, which the fact that they haven't really makes that achievement all the more spectacular. It only took a wonder goal for Leicester to defeat them in the FA Cup final and then a marginal uh, offside call on Ben Chilwell. That could, have t- that could have totally changed the narrative and we could t- be talking about Thomas Tuchel winning a double and getting Chelsea into the top four all with like maybe five months with the team. So it's absolutely spectacular job he's done. And you mentioned about how young the team was and that's correct. And even if you look at the game, uh, Thiago Silva went off injured and they could just bring in Anders Christensen and, you know, he, he, he coped very well with all he had to do. And it just shows how quickly and how effectively his tactical ideas have permeated the squad and how everybody knows their role and how it's so functional. Whereas under Frank Lampard, it was more just like 11 players without a real tangible plan. And they were just kind of, you know, one lad would try something and another lad would try something else. And in some games it paid off just just because they had better players. But when it really came to the white hot heat of the big games against the competitive beasts and the big teams, you know, it didn't really materialize that way. Whereas it's the polar opposite under Thomas Tuchel. And yeah, like Chelsea are a club that rarely have stability, but even if he left and maybe a season or two, they would still have a really good, young, exciting core to work with. Uh, chiefly Mason Mount, who I think was absolutely brilliant against Manchester City. He, uh, he, he, he assisted Kai Havertz with a, with a lovely through ball. And Kai Havertz is actually another player that they could build around as well. So they're really well set for the future, regardless of any way they go. And just because, again, with FFP being relaxed, they have Roman Abramovich's billions to bankroll them. So I think they'll be there, thereabouts for the title every season for the foreseeable future, I would imagine. The lovely is understatement because that ball was ridiculous. Like it was from so deep and it was like so ambitious and it came off perfectly. You know, it was remarkable, really, in many ways. And I think that, like, given that Mason Mount was kind of almost painted with the brush of being Frank Lampard's golden boy, it's very impressive how he's rallied and to become one of the key men on the two It's kind of a testament to his quality as a player. Um, but what do you reckon, Jasmine? I know that, you know, Frank Lampard is someone who, uh, who's aroused excitement and kind of debate uh, in this podcast over the course of the season. Uh, he's a controversial character for sure. Um, I don't think he's quite the Cobham Cruyff that some in the media have been painting out in the last few weeks in terms of setting up this team for this triumph. Uh, I think it's more a case of uh, Tuchel being able to elevate a very talented squad that any coach would like to work with, really. But I always found it, Interesting that Cesar as Piliqueta was the main man in this game in many ways. I mean, not in the performance, but in terms of the narrative around it, the post-match celebrations. I mean, Kai Havertz, after we mentioned that um, post-interview we gave, uh, as Piliqueta came over and kind of grabbed him and kind of was saying, you know, listen, this guy is, 
you know, under pressure of the season. He's worked really, really hard and he's gonna just just award this this evening. And he's really kind of like a proper leader who was basically excommunicated under Lampard in many ways. I mean, do you think that like the likes of him and Marcus Llorente as well, like players who weren't given the time of day by Lampard, their kind of eminence and their prominence in the latter stage of the season is kind of a rebuke to his methods and very much kind of a validation of Tuchel's methods and how important Tuchel has been in taking this team to the next level. Absolutely. I'm quite surprised that um, Lampard is even being quoted as a controversial figure. Um, he had no real tactics. Uh, I've watched him. I had the pleasure of watching him at Derby as well. And, you know, they should have done a lot better than they did. I guess they did win their playoff semi-final against um, Marco Bielsa's, uh, Marcelo Bielsa's, uh uh, Leeds team but they failed in the playoff final and he had an amazing team um, he had Tomori which weirdly didn't really get used at his time at Chelsea um, he had Mason Mount which he helped develop um, but the team Chelsea had I I really don't think he went, you know what, I want Timo Werner. I really don't think that was his choice. Um, and I don't really see why Lampard has gotten any credit at all. I mean, okay, they were in the FA Cup fifth round. That was not... That was not up to him. They beat Luton Town. I think most teams could beat Leighton Town if they wanted. Um, oh, he, he got into the last 16 of the Champions League. It wasn't that hard. His team was the most talented. They were ninth in the league. Um, it was just not good. They weren't good at counter-pressing. And when they try and counter-press, and counter-pressing is when you're unable to defend after losing the ball, that kind of defined that they had this lack of structure when in possession by being like too wide or too narrow so once they lost the ball it was too much distance to cover which also affected that if they were had the ball if they had the ball and they were too wide too narrow whatever they couldn't really structure themselves to play the ball forward so what we saw a lot in Lampard's kind of heyday under Chelsea is that they didn't really create a lot they only got top four because everyone else basically pooed themselves out of it um looking predominantly at Leicester um and and that was literally it and you know we've, we've seen interviews with Lampard saying oh you know the Chelsea boards and priorities are wrong and we can't win titles with this team and you know that really is a um <laughs> it really is a kind of uh, a special light to Tuchel's tactics and how he progressed them into a structured, confident and balanced team which could create something in attack while being defensive. Because you don't really see, especially with bigger teams, you don't really see the back three, back five very often. You normally see the 4-2-3-1 
could you cover more ground naturally, especially in defense and attack? Um, yeah, so it's it's completely stupid that he got any of the credit. You know, the kind of interviews before were stupid as well. And it's not controversial to say Tool is great at his job. And, you know, he completely deserved it. So you wrote an article in the last few days about how Tuchel specifically transformed Chelsea into Champions League winners. Um, could you just condense that into a, you know, kind of a, a spiel, do you reckon? Like, a, like what for you were the keys behind Tuchel's uh, success at Stanford Bridge, Chelsea? Um, so first, the proper structure. Um, so, uh, yeah, proper structure, he... Went to the back three five. It was slightly more defensive, but you know they still were able to progress the ball forward because they actually had a structure instead of you know players looking like completely lost on the pitch. Um, he also um, gave players individualized roles because Tuchel didn't have enough time to like imprint his own stance on them so went for the most efficient ways he also implemented a man marking approach kind of a based on he actually based it more on Atalanta's ways when PSG when he was manager of PSG versus Atalanta um he really commended the way that they the tactical approach that they played and he kind of took some of that into this Chelsea team. So because he didn't have enough time to implement his own stance, it's easier, especially when defending, when players just have one player to mark um, rather than sonally marking. And yeah, that was basically a short-lined way of how it all clicked together. Um, yeah, that that was basically how he got them playing. If you look at the goal they scored against Man City in the FA Cup semi to the goal that they scored in the Champions League final, you can see the kind of ways and approach of how he plays his team. Um, by if someone's like pressing quite far up the pitch, how to chip the ball over that first line onto their the opposition team's weak side and try and cut around that especially with Timo Werner on the left side because that's where his natural strength is which was lost under Frank Lampard and you know Ziyech under Lampard was played as an I think as an A, a 9, a 10 and a winger where Tuchel has just you know found the spot for him straight away. Absolutely Um, it wasn't such a good night for Pep Guardiola, Man City, uh, John. Um, I mean, obviously, like, <laughs> the accusation that he was overthinking it is pretty common. Uh, and it seems to be on the ball in this case. I mean, like, he's he has a history for doing so. Uh, and he seems to do it again, not feeling a defensive midfielder in uh, the biggest game of the season. It was quite bizarre. I mean, like, I remember I've said uh, several times in this pod that I didn't think City would lose three games on the bounce to Tuchel's Chelsea, but they did. Like, do you think it was a case of City overthinking things or do you think there's more to it than that? It's there. There's probably an element of truth in both statements. I think, for one, sometimes I feel like Guardiola is a little bit insecure and feels like he has to live up to this 
reputation, which I feel is sometimes maybe a little bit ill-gotten of being this like tactical genius or this trendsetter. So all of a sudden he ends up putting Ilkay Gundogan, who's actually been probably one of their foremost goal-scoring outlets this season and who's been exceptional at attacking the box late from deep positions. He puts him as a, as a defensive midfielder, which, you know, I guess there's logic in it in one sense because he probably thought that they would control the possession. And, you know, that would be their means of defending. And then by having enough offensive players on the park, he felt like maybe they could unlock Chelsea in that way. But, you know, if the game works on both sides, then that left him really vulnerable to transition. And there was multiple locations where Chelsea sided through their press relatively easily. And, you know, they didn't make the most of those openings. Timo Werner, as he invariably is, was guilty on a couple of occasions of missing uh, of missing some decent opportunities after Chelsea well, you know, with relative ease, I think, played through Manchester City and got on the front foot. So I think Guardiola has to uh, has to take some criticism for this, absolutely. Uh, starting Sterling, I think, was, was another strange decision because I don't think that his form in any way, shape or form uh, would have warranted him starting such a such such a big game but i think i'm i'm uncomfortable with the narrative of this final being all about guardiola for all of the reasons that jasmine outlined i think that thomas tuchel devised and crafted a brilliant tactical game plan and the chelsea players carried it out to the to the nth degree um but i think yeah guardiola definitely deserves some criticism but again i think some of that criticism is over the top people are wondering whether his Bayern reign or his Manchester City reign will be deemed a failure because he hasn't won the Champions League. But at the end of the day, the Champions League is a cup competition that the, the margins are absolutely tiny. You know, you can be, not that they were unlucky, but you can be unlucky in finals and maybe you deserve to win, but don't. So I don't see that as a failure on his behalf, but it is most definitely a black mark on his Manchester City tenure because he inherited the likes of De Bruyne, the likes of Aguero, Fernandinho, Sterling, and then he has spent an obscene amount on top of that, chiefly in pursuit of the Champions League, and he hasn't got there. So it is a black mark, but it's definitely not an outright failure. Uh, but in the battle of the coaches, Tuchel won hands down, and that's been three times on the, uh, on, on the spin now that he uh, he's beaten Guardiola. And I can envision next season that being a big narrative ahead of the team's meeting. And you know, all of the games have been really enjoyable, so that's definitely something to look forward to for someone who doesn't necessarily have skin in the game and supporting either of those teams. Yeah, I mean, but listen, like, I mean, like, I understand your point, but I think like the last time we won the Champions League was 2011. Um, and he's spoken before with that Barcelona team and their mentality, how unique it was, because you obviously you Sergio Busquets, you had Gerard Pique, you had Carlos Puyol, you had Xavi, you had Andres Iniesta, you had Lionel Messi, David Villa, like, you know, one of the best groups of players to have ever played the game. And what he said was that they were nice guys off the pitch, but on the field, they were assassins, he said. He said they had no fear they were absolutely ruthless and they played finals as if they were friendlies, you know? And it's a very rare trade to find players like that. And I wonder, is Guardiola's manner so frenetic that it kind of almost not doesn't that it transmits uh panic amongst his charges, but it definitely doesn't transmit calm amongst his charges, especially when he makes these massive changes and decisions before massive games. I mean, like, you know, going out against Monaco against Lyon, against Real Madrid in the Champions League as well. Like, it's, it's some high-profile exits in his tenure there. I mean, like, at both Bayern Munich and, Rem- and, and, and Manchester City, he was coaching the team with the biggest budget and the best squad 
in the season. So it was logical that they win the title. And they did it, winning it in a remarkable way. And nobody's questioning that, that he's a phenomenal coach. But I think there is something to this criticism about his record in Europe since that game back in Wembley in 2011. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, if you look... Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And also, if you look at his Barcelona tenure, that was a perfect storm. What other club at what other time would get the caliber of player all coming through their holistic academy that has ingrained a certain tactical idea into their minds from the word go at the same time? So who else would be able to bring through Pedro, Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, Poyal and Pique within, you know, maybe different in Poyal's case, but all of those players within a generation of each other, let's just say. Nobody else, I don't think, in football history will ever really have a crop like that all at the same time, also indoctrinated, I would say, into the same tactical principles and be able to hit the ground running. I mean, you can't dispute that he's been massively successful and he is a brilliant coach, but in some ways, like, he has re- he has rode the crest of a waves. Like, he-, he inherited a Bayern squad that had won a treble, like I mentioned at Manchester City, he inherited Sterling, De Bruyne, Aguero, Fernandinho. And by the way, that was a City squad that had won titles previously. It's not like they were edge-the-bed virgins who needed, you know, a bit of coaxing to finally be able to get over the line. Like, they had done it. You know, they, they're, they have class players. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there is definitely something into that criticism. But I think the more he gets criticised, the more insecure he gets. And then the more he tries to to double down because having read books about him, like he'd be the kind of person to be waking up at 3 a.m. worrying about how he'll instruct his false nine to, you know, maybe pull out to the right-hand side. And and that that has been a big criticism that's followed him throughout his career is that maybe he burns out players, that maybe it's a little bit too in-depth. I know that when Carlo Ancelotti succeeded him at Bayern Munich, that the players felt like Ancelotti did too little. So it was almost like, two extremes but I think sometimes what he wants is too burdensome he's like this great artist but like very flamboyant and he he feels that nobody is able to work with him and he gets frustrated and I think those kind of things do transmit to a player to players so I think Juan Malilo his appointment has definitely helped him this season but sometimes you know what's in him will come out and I think what's in him is the the capability sometimes to to overthink things and to try and look too smart and invariably when you try to be too smart and ignore the route that took you to your excess, it, it balls us up and it, it happened on this occasion. But I'm sure he'll be he'll be back in the latter stages of the Champions League again next season just because of the players he has at his disposal. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I'm reluctant to kind of, you know, indulge the ball for all narratives. Obviously, it's it's false. I mean, Guardiola's a genius of football, and he's been pivotal in constructing, you know, three of the best teams we've ever seen, you could say, in the European game. Um, but I think there is something in this theory that he does overthink these big, massive games, and, and he, he makes things hard for himself. You know what I mean? Like, even this summer, now there was a piece today in Athletic by Sam Lee, uh, who's very close to Man City, talking about the issues behind the scenes at the club over the course of the season. And there were issues that would have been issues no matter whether they had won on Saturday night or not. I mean, in terms of obviously Sergio Aguero today joining Barcelona, but several high-profile players who are not getting the game time, they feel they merit the likes of Imeric Laporte, um, Raheem Sterling, uh, amongst others, Bernardo Silva, not getting the prominence in the game time that they feel they deserve the summer potentially agitating for moves maybe in this window um, with changes in the horizon at the club. So 
I don't know, it's kind of a weird one in many ways. Like, I mean, Jasmine, what, what's your thoughts on it? Like, do you think that, you know, this overthinking thing is definitely a thing? And do you think that there, he deserves criticism for his European record since leaving Barcelona? Absolutely, I think, especially in this part, uh, in his past. But I mean, I have to agree, agree with John about the inclusion of Sterling. We saw so little of him recently. Um, he, I, I didn't understand his kind of reasoning of including him that day. I felt like he tried to outmastermind Tuchel and because of the last two games where he's failed to beat him and, you know, kind of changed it too much. Uh, any tactics and any kind of misplaced tactics in the last couple of years and seasons in the Champions League does have to be analysed and looked at. And there's definitely a psychological factor factor when if you don't do it one, two, three, etc. times that no matter what you do tactically, it could have been tactically perfect. You know, if you struggle to beat someone in a certain competition a number of times, that kind of hoodoo over your head does get to you and it is hard to break. And I thought... Man City might have turned a corner, but, you know, it's just, I don't know how you would turn a corner, yet somehow fall back into doing this. I think with especially the PSG match, it's not that they got lucky. Actually, they did get lucky, you know, um, it just didn't really work from for PSG and I think on another day they could have just been outclassed earlier. But I think I don't think he's had the hardest run in this Champions League and I don't think any tactical flaws earlier in the game wouldn't have pick, been picked up until now. And it definitely is a cross between him overthinking tactics, whether subliminal and unconscious or conscious decisions. And I think John is slightly right. Um, some managers are classed with so much innovation when really, you know, it's just a a slight, a slight not improvement, but slight evolution of what it used to be before. Um Especially when we've seen so many years of Guardiola, I think this Man City team is actually quite hard to bring in out into Europe when all of the rest of Europe uh, have experienced Guardiola before. Um, so yeah, there has to be some valid criticisms of his style in Europe, but you know more than we've seen tweets saying. Um, fans are furious at him, etc. I think there'll be some anger, but, you know, nothing lasting then a week before, you know, he wins them another title, etc. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one because I feel like even as an Evertonian, there's like this kind of reverence towards Carlo Ancelotti and James Rodriguez, but I think in recent months we've learned that 
while these characters are legendary and they're you know they're doing a lot of good for the football club they're not above criticism I think Guardiola is the same I mean like nobody can question his commitment to Man City nobody can question the job he's done but it doesn't mean that he's above criticism I mean like he's still a human being he's not a deity do you know so I think it's only right that people can criticize him especially when they're involved with the football club but I don't think that uh yeah, Fury is the correct answer as you said um, the Yaya Torre called it it's an African witch doctor's curse so yes. you know regardless of what he does he's goose <laughs> is he he's no hope does he no hope um but yeah i mean like speaking of coaches it's been a very very active week off the pitch this week i mean antonio conte as you mentioned leaving inter milan because he's not being backed by the the ownership uh they want to sell players i think Ash- ashraf hakimi is honestly the psg it seems um lukaku as i mentioned is linked with chelsea uh latero martinez is also going to move away um and he felt like he wasn't able to build on his title-winning teams. So he's taken his leave. He's been into Real Madrid, who were left managerless this week after Zinedine Zidane decided he was leaving the club for the second time as a coach, third time in general after leaving as a player as well. Uh, of his own accord and releasing a letter this morning where he basically criticised the club, saying that they were kind of undermining him in many ways. And because of that, he decided to leave. Uh, elsewhere, you Mauricio Pochettino agitating for a move away from Paris Saint-Germain, either back to Spurs or to Real Madrid, depending on what reports you read. So, yeah, lots of things going on in uh, the world of managerial changes. Um, what do you think, Jasmine? Um, what's the, kind of the most uh, shocking managerial change on the cards this summer for you? And what do you think is the most likely kind of pattern of behavior that could emerge out of this next few weeks? That's a mean question to ask me after, you know, (laughs) how many coaches have changed in the Bundesliga this season? That's mean. (laughs) Well, I figured you'd be the expert in coach changes, but then, you know. (laughs) Um, uh, I have no idea anymore anything, but I seem to suggest seems to go wrong. Um, <laughs> do you know who the favourite for Real Madrid is? Well, yeah, I mean, the favourite is... It was Allegri, but I think Allegri was... His feelings was hurt a bit because um, Madrid were dragging their heels in his appointment, so he decided to go to Juventus instead. And that seems to be very happy. I didn't mention Juventus in that roundup, actually. Just kind of uh, unforgivable, they sacked Andrea Pirlo. But uh, yeah, Allegri is back at Juve, seems to be a happy marriage. Brought him to two um, Champions League finals in his time there, um, dominated Serie A. Uh, but Allegri was the favourite in many sectors. Uh, Pacino has only recently emerged because of the news that he's kind of maybe not entirely happy at PSG, that it feels maybe undermined by Leonardo off the pitch, maybe Neymar and Mbappe on it. Uh, the favourite isn't the preferred option for the club according to the Madrid media is Pochettino um, and then Raul is there as almost a backup in many ways and then Conte is kind of in the wings I think that Madrid see themselves it's not being above Conte that would be harsh to say but they see themselves of a different profile you know Conte is a controversial character he likes using everything at his disposal to get results and I think their hope is that Conte goes to Spurs and that frees up the path to go and get um, Pochettino from PSG without having to compete with Spurs. So, uh, so yeah, that's the, kind of the, the, the thought process from Spain. <laughs> um, 
I could probably see the Conte thing more than I can see the Pochettino thing. I know there have been some talks, some rumours about Pochettino leaving PSG, but I honestly don't think he will, and I don't think PSG will allow him to, um, not just yet anyway. Um, So that's why I think Conte might be. I know he's a controversial character, but... Especially judging on Real Madrid's um, Real Madrid's kind of past like behaviors, it seems to me that Conte would suit the most into in short term results. But like as I said, Zidane's kind of letter of not allowing him to kind of progress would suggest the short term option. Um, so yeah, I kind of can see. Um, I can see Conte going. There's always also Yogi Love, as you know. Apparently, he's taken Spanish lessons and has been interested. Interesting to both Real Madrid and Barca. I honestly think they should wait a year to see what Pochettino actually does with PSG before getting him in. I think he would be a good fit, and he's a Madrid man. Um, more than a Barca man. So, yeah, I think those are the two I kind of see at the moment. Um, Unless, yeah, those are the two. I can't believe, like, there was some talks about uh, both Barcelona and Real Madrid going for Hansi Flick. I I still (laughs) am laughing at that. Yeah, I mean, Barcelona actually did speak to him, apparently. They, they tried to properly um, put that emotion and uh, didn't enjoy a whole lot of success. I think he seems to be a character who's not tired of club management, but maybe prefers a life in, in international management, it seems. Uh, John, what's your thoughts on the managerial merry-go-round across Europe at the moment? I wonder will Conte's lack of European success hinder any chances of him taking the Real Madrid job? Because I'm a massive fan of Conte. Some people would call his football style a bit boring at times, but I find it really entertaining, really direct. For me, direct doesn't necessarily mean just long ball and playing the percentages. Direct can be just like a, a very ruthless way of looking to attack a team's weakness uh, and uh, and to play quickly. So I really enjoy his style of play, and I think he's an excellent coach. But like his European record does leave an awful lot to be desired uh, at all of the clubs he's been at. So whether that's Juventus, where he's got knocked out of a Europa League semi-final by Benfica, for example, or whether that's at Chelsea or uh, or Inter Milan in the Champions League. Like he's, he's invariably done fairly poorly in Europe. So I think apart from che- checking that box, he, he, he would be the ideal candidate. But, you know, as we know, Real Madrid are a club that are characterised by their performances in the Champions League. So maybe that would be something that would probably maybe dampen their, their fervour to appoint him. But other than that, I think he, he would be a fantastic coach for them. Absolutely. Um, and could, Jasmine, can you maybe like surmise what's going on in Germany? I mean, it's quite complex from the outside and intimidating in many ways, but like, like how, how, how crazy is it? Like I said, I've said many times, I thought before, you know, maybe paying closer attention to Germany this season because we're speaking with you every week in this podcast. Uh, I thought the Germany was, a, you know, the Bundesliga was a sober, uh, ordered and calm league and it's anything but it seems to be in a state of permanent chaos i mean can you explain what's going on in terms of managerial changes this summer in the in the bundesliga 
Um, so since the last, oh God, I can't remember actually, because we had um, Cone go for the relegation playoff against um, Heal in the Svita Bundesliga and Cone oh, after two legs were victorious for based in the Bundesliga. They're getting rid of um, Funtime Frankie, as I call him, um, Funkle. Uh, his one of his names means sparkle in English. I remember that. Um, so they've gotten rid of him for partable manager Stefan Baumgart. So he'll take the reins next year in the Bundesliga. We have Werder Bremen relegated, sacked um, their old manager Florian Kofeld, who was quite a talent in manager in a managerial sense, but hadn't done well with. Werder Bremen at all. They sacked him before their last game and brought in an interim. And basically that kind of kind of sacking has now caused a knock-on effect in managerial changes in the Spider Bundesliga, basically, the German Championship. So now we have um Werder Bremen, who are quite a big club along with Schalke, to get relegated this season, now looking for a new manager. And they have picked on the team I support since I've moved, um, Darmstadt. They seem to want Darmstadt's manager, which it looks like it's nearly done. So now Darmstadt are looking for a new manager. Um, Hamburg didn't get into the uh, promotion, so they... They also hired a new manager from the new season as well. And I can't... Oh, and also, I can't remember when this happened because time is currently an illusion. Um, <laughs> Wolfsburg manager Oliver Glasner, so this is Bundesliga news for you, well, past news, um, left, Eintracht Fra- uh, left Wolfsburg to go to Eintracht Frankfurt, which is really strange because, as everyone knows, Wolfsburg finished into the Champions League places and Eintracht Frankfurt only got Europa League. So, yeah, he's made a switch from Champions League to Europa League. That was because of many problems. Um, He didn't really get on with some of the higher-ups, so it was always rumoured to happen. Then you had apparently him going for the RB Leipzig job after Nagelsmann got the Bayern job. Um, But because of that, that fell apart with... um, Jesse Marsh from RB Salzburg taking that Leipzig job. So it kind of really was his job was untenable. So um, Eintracht Frankfurt, who was looking for a new manager, I think their favourite might have been Edin Terzic, the interim coach at Dortmund, who um, is dropping down to assistant coach when Marco Rosa of Gladbach comes in. Um, Frankfurt tried to get him, I think, and... With him wanting to stay at Dortmund for the meantime, they've turned to other options, which was Oliver Glassman, which was a little bit better for them to take. So much going on. So much going so, on. Quite remarkable, really. But yeah, um, like, how do you feel the season coming to an end uh, makes you feel, John? I mean, like, it's been a weird one because it kind of started so almost quietly 
amidst the end of the last one, it was very much kind of transitioning almost seamlessly in, from one to the other and has been quite a relentless slog, really. I mean, games been very close together for the whole campaign. Um, as I said, very relentless, very kind of back-to-back, without breaks, without rest. How do you feel now that it's come to an end finally? Do you feel relieved? Do you feel that the break will do us all good? Do you feel like you'll come back in September or August with a bit of a renewed impetus and a bit of enthusiasm for the Euros too, perhaps? Oh, I always do. I'm, I'm besotted with the sport. I mean, at times it can really annoy me. And like, I, I would never say I flat out don't enjoy it, but it, in times this season, the standard was just absolutely dire. And of course it was. That's not a criticism of the players. That's an acknowledgement that they were made to play in the most concertina season of all time. Like they, they, they were played way too often and logically, you know, the standard of the output would dip. So at times it was a bit tedious. And I guess with the exception of, uh, of Ligue 1 and, uh, and of Spain, you know, it was more or less the same old teams that were winning it. Uh, Chelsea was a nice surprise in the, in the Champions League, I guess. But yeah, at times it was very tedious and boring. But I will really look forward to it getting back. I think the fact that there's a Euros and a Copa America, which is a shambles in and of itself because they've moved it three times. And now they're moving it to Brazil, which is a COVID hotbed with 13 days notice. It's absolutely crazy. I think that will have a residual impact going into next season because the same players who we just mentioned who were being flogged all season are now going to play a really intense period of summer football and barely have enough time off before they come back for their club commitments by which time that finishes, they go into a Winter World Cup in 2022. So I think really this season and potentially the season after that should be a case study for the people and the powers that be uh, in the upper echelons of football decision-making that they need to say, okay, there's too much football. Like we're actually damaging the product because the players, and as much as people don't have sympathy for them because they're paid obscene amounts of money, the players are being flogged like pieces of meat. And, you know, it, all it's going to do is damage the product. And, you know, us as fans, that could be the worst thing that would happen. So, yeah, it was it was tedious for a long time. But I know that after a, maybe a week or two, I'd be like, oh, I'd love a 3 p.m. kickoff now. And I'd love to just do, settle into my comfort habits of, you know, checking checking my score out for random, for random games because I might have a passing interest in one player in that team or what have you. So... I will miss it, but in a certain way, I'm relieved it's over. But I do have long-term worries about how good football is going to be next season because I don't think you can suddenly click your fingers and be like, season 2020-2021 is over and it won't impact 21-22 because I'm afraid that it will. Absolutely. How about you, Jasmine? How do you feel about it? Do you feel maybe that while it's been a slog this year, that perhaps with the summer break with... Euros, obviously, the Cup of America. Do you think that maybe with even with the return of fans and the new season, hopefully, you know, to full capacity stadiums, that there'd be a bit of enthusiasm there, a bit of a kind of re-energization? Or, or what do you think? Um, depends on certain teams, like especially in the way of the Germany national team, where you've got most of the players from Bayern Munich. I think we'll see the top teams struggle a little bit next year um Germany might actually be an exception just because of the amount of managerial changes and the teams trying to catch up and fit in from their new managers but you know there'll be a lot of top tier players that are just tired in the next year and I I agree with John 
the only thing that we've got going with next season is that it's going to be a more normal fixture list. Um, so yeah, I can I think I can see, especially at the starting point, a little bit more lax, maybe a few more mistakes, maybe a bit more injuries. But yeah, I think especially certain teams, you might see a a less a lack of point of quality. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Um, just to finish off, guys, I guess, ask you each for your moment of the season. Uh, I know we do not moments of the week normally. I think that uh, give us the last episode of the European League season. We'll continue to broadcast to some extent during the European Championships in the, in the coming weeks. But uh, it's the last episode until August for the actual domestic league season. So just to round things off, I mean, for me, mine had to be Lionel Messi celebrating uh, his goal against Asuna, I think it was, uh, immediately after Diego Maradona had died. He'd been silent pretty much uh, in the days afterwards. Uh, he celebrated his goal. I think it was a pretty routine victory for Barcelona at Camp Nou in November. And when he celebrated, he said, what is the teammates? Initially, kind of he was mobbed and stuff, and he had that moment. And then afterwards, when they left, he kind of turned away to himself, uh, walked away, and lifted a shirt to reveal the newest old boy shirts that Maradona and he both wore as, uh, well, Messi is a young man. He was the first club before he joined Barcelona and Maradona as an older man. It was one of his last clubs when he was uh, on the final stretch of his uh, playing career. But uh, pointed to this guy, pointed to number 10 in his back. It was the actual shirt that Maradona wore when he played for Newell's old boys. I thought it was a beautiful moment because, you know, in my opinion, the, the two best players to have ever done done it in history I think Diego Maradona is probably the most iconic and the most talented player to ever play football and Messi is you know objectively the best player to ever play football in terms of his numbers in terms of what he's accomplished in his career his consistency um so yeah personally I found that to be my favorite moment of the whole season um in a season that didn't have a whole lot of moments that were like that really they were kind of almost spiritual in many ways you could say um but John what was your moment of the season Maybe on a similar theme to yours, yours was a really good one. I would think that Alison Becker's goal against West Bromwich Albion, obviously I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm minded to pick perhaps a Liverpool moment, but for a goalkeeper to come up and to nod in a header with the last play of the game, for a goal that ultimately was really the impetus to make Liverpool kick on and to claim third spot, uh, a place in the table that looked really, really remote, maybe only two weeks beforehand, it was a fantastic moment, but also tying into the emotive angle of it, which you done with the Maradona and Messi uh, um, tribute, was the fact that Alison's dad had died earlier in the year. He drowned in tragic circumstances in Brazil, and obviously because of the pandemic, he wasn't able to go home and to grieve with his family. And I can only imagine the absolute pain and the stress that would put on someone. For so for him to deliver a moment like that in the midst of his father dying in circumstances like that. I think it was so powerful. And even if I didn't support Liverpool, I think that would be a moment I mentioned just for the sheer novelty of a goalkeeper scoring, but also the context for the team, but also the context for his personal life. It obviously, you know, won't dampen the blow, but I'm sure like he will feel like as a religious man like he is, I'm sure he'll feel like his father had a role to play in that moment. And it's something that he'll cherish forever, I'm sure. Absolutely incredible moments. And everybody, no matter what stripe you're coming from, you can appreciate that, I think. Uh, Jasmine, what was your moment of the season? I think it has to be for me 
I'm going to pick the theme of a, the team I support. Um, Lacazette's um, kneeling for Black Lives Matter in front of the Slavia Prague team in the second leg of the Europa League quarterfinal. Um, obviously, we all know what happened with Slavia Prague against Rangers, especially the racist abuse against ex-Arsenal player Glenn Kamara and um, Cadella being banned for 10 games for racist behaviour. And, you know, it was such a statement at that time for him to not only just kneel, but kneel right in front of the Slavia Prague players who didn't kneel. Um, I think it was a really defiant moment after smashing them 4-0. Or before we just smashed them 4-0. And I think it was such a powerful statement, especially after everything that had happened, that, um, yeah, it was really defiant, supportive, and something that I really want to see more of into the new season. Absolutely. Absolutely. A very powerful moment for sure. But yeah, guys, listen, thanks so much for joining, uh, not just today, but for the entire season, the kind of first season of the European Football Show. I feel like it's gone quite well, and I'm hoping you'll both return next season to continue with the development and touch on, hopefully, more atmospheric games with less behind-closed-doors action and more action with the whole regalia that football should come with. So thanks so much to both of you for that, for joining me through this uh, season, later after the season especially. Um, but what's your socials, guys? Before I finish off, mine is at Azulfili on Twitter. Jasmine, mine is underscore Jasmine Baba on Twitter. When you can find a link and me spamming work that I've done, um, and also thank you for inviting me on for this half a season, and hopefully we can carry it on next season too, Alan. Absolutely. Thank you, Jasmine. And John, how about you? Um, mine is at NotoriousJOS on Twitter. Just to echo what Jasmine says, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to come on and to talk football with two great football minds such as yourselves, but also Mark Doyle and many, many, many more who I've really learned an awful lot from. Uh, like Jasmine, I use my Twitter to plug my work and to sometimes wax lyrical about lovely, lovely Guinness. So, I mean, there's a real mixed bag in there for people who are brave enough to take the plunge. Yeah. This is the propaganda campaign underway for me to convert John from a Guinness drinker to a Beamish slash Murphy's drinker. But uh, I'll let you know how that goes over the summer. But uh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate that. Like I said, and also to the listener, I hope you enjoyed. As always, please share if you did. Uh, really help us grow and that kind of thing. And um, like I said, we'll see you back soon for the European Championships. There's something in the pipeline there. Not entirely sure of the format yet, but when we are, uh, you'll know. And if not, we'll see you back for the new season in August. Hopefully revitalize, re-energize and all that kind of thing. Uh, So yeah, thanks guys and see you soon. Have a good summer and enjoy the football.